This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City. Information you want, truth you demand. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, in this holiday weekend. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you, if you change your schedule and you're hearing me for the first time, hopefully you'll adjust your schedule and hear for much, uh, many more times because we also have a podcast. Uh, you go to BrianKilmeadeShow.com, you can order the podcast. So this hour, I am just in heaven. I have a chance to talk history with arguably the best in the business. H.W. Brands is coming up next, our first Civil War, Patriots and Loyalists in the American Revolution. And a little bit later, this esteemed historian, you can't put his books down once you pick it up, Nathaniel Philbrick. His new book is Travel with George, In Search of Washington and His Legacy. He goes through on a trip that he must have just loved this. I love this idea. I wish I'd thought of it, where he walked in George Washington's footsteps, not just in Mount Vernon, but where he went, where he Fought and where he lived and where he traveled to in the most fascinating American to ever walk the face of the earth. But now let's go with H.W. Brands talking about his latest book, Our First Civil War. And it wasn't the Civil War. Let's listen. This is an unbelievable premise. It's so cool. What what prompted you to make you feel like this this area was ripe for you? Well, most people know of the American Revolution as a time when Americans rose up, demanded and won their independence from Britain. But the story is more complicated than that. Americans first had to decide among themselves whether they wanted independence or not. And in fact, this question split Americans. And there were those who said, yes, independence. But what that meant was forsaking the country of their birth and taking up arms against it. That's a big deal. That's a big decision. Others yeah. said, no, no, we, should, we need to stick with Britain. The British Empire has been good for us, and it needs fixing. Yeah, but it doesn't need overthrowing. So it was patriot against loyalists, and exactly. it sometimes divided families. For example, Benjamin oh, it, Franklin's family. Oh, so this is a very poignant example because Benjamin Franklin, first of all, he was a very unlikely rebel. He was extremely successful within the British Empire, and he was 70 years old when all this happened. But he decided enough is enough, time to get out. His son, William Franklin, successful in his own right, said, no, Dad, I'm not going with you. And Benjamin Franklin was very hurt by this. He was quite pained by the fact that his son would choose Britain over him personally. For Benjamin Franklin, it became a personal thing, and it it tore the family apart. Just one of the things that did it, when you look at the reasons, first off, that, that even brought this question up, you see a slow simmer. When Can you outline the series of events that had people like Jefferson and Madison and Monroe and uh, Washington and Benjamin Franklin uh, and Alexander Hamilton say we have no choice. We have to get. We have to fight for our freedom. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I do in the book is to connect the personal lives of individuals with the political context that they live in, and it became a very personal choice. And so you could look at individuals, and you wouldn't necessarily be able to predict that this one is going to become a rebel, that is a patriot, and this one is going to remain a loyalist, that is oppose independence. But the the big story is that the American colonies 
American English colonies were found at the beginning of the 17th century. And for about 150 years, the British government left them pretty much on their own. Americans got used to the idea of running their own affairs. They developed this strong individualistic streak. And when the British government decided in the 1760s to tighten up the administration, to tell the Americans more of what they couldn't do, and then the things that they must do, like paying taxes that they hadn't paid before, then this individualistic streak came out. And Americans basically said, you know, we want to run our own affairs. And that's sort of the the most straightforward way of explaining all of this. Now, again, there are other people who said, this doesn't warrant a war. Let's just work on the political situation in Britain. And maybe we can change the minds of the British government. But those who became patriots, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, the whole whole bunch, they said, sorry, it's gone too far. We must have our own country. And they would fight. And it's just hard to think, uh, talking to H.W. Brands now, hard to imagine. So you're going to take on the world's superpower, uh, the largest army, the best navy, and you're going to try to beat them without any experienced army or navy. They're going to be militia. And America wasn't even united in the cause. Well, yeah. And so that that last thing you said is the heart of my story, because John Adams himself, who is probably as good a judge of this as anyone, said that at the outset of the war, only a third of Americans were patriots. That is firmly in favor of independence. Another third were the loyalists. They said we ought to stick with Britain. And the other third were in the middle. So much of the struggle for American independence was the struggle among Americans. And in fact, the ugliest, the most bitter fighting in the war was not Americans against British. It was Americans against Americans, as often happens in civil wars. So, uh, H.W., as we start progressing in this war, the British thuggish behavior and the pickup uh, of the oppressive behavior and the savage way in which they fought and would dominate these cities, would that help unite people behind the rebel cause? So the British, as a government, they had to make a decision. It's a tactical decision, and that is, do we try to crush the rebellion, and that is, and, and so we can defeat the patriots? But if we do that, will we alienate more of that middle ground? So there are political and military decisions that go together in all of this, and similar considerations are happening on the patriot side. So when George Washington was trying to hold his army together at Valley Forge, he was running out of food. And they needed food. They needed stuff to eat. There was food in the surrounding area, but Washington had to be very careful about sending his men out to forage and basically steal the cattle of the people who lived in the area, depriving them of what they needed because it might drive them over to the loyalist side. So this is a reminder that every war is essentially a political contest. Wars begin in politics. They end in politics. And the politics doesn't go away in the middle of the fighting. The other thing to keep in mind, we had uh, American Indians, the indigenous people. What side are they going to take? And what about uh, oh. the American slave culture? Uh, sadly, slavery was existing mostly in the South. Uh, what side would they take? Would British try to take advantage and promise the slaves freedom if they would, in fact, fight for them? And what about the Indians? We know they played a big role in the uh, War of 1812. Yeah. So this is exactly it. Basically, everybody who was in the American colonies, the new American states, had to make a decision. Which side are you going to choose? The decision was relatively straightforward for the white folks, but for their slaves, where did where did they fall? They did have to make a decision after the British government offered freedom 
to those slaves of patriot masters who had crossed the lines and come over to the British side and fight against their former masters. Some slaves took up the offer. Others said, wait, this is too risky. I'm not sure I can trust the British promise. So slaves had to make a choice. The Native Americans, the Indians, they had to make a choice. They had been making choices for 100 years, every time Britain and France went to war. The Indian tribes had to say, well, should we side with the British? Should we side with the French? After the end of the French and Indian War, the French were gone, but now all of a sudden they have to decide between the American patriots, the independent movement, and the British loyalists. And some chose one, some chose the other. How did we, uh, how did we after the French-Indian War, what, what was left? Like, how did that set up the Revolutionary War? Well, so Americans fought bravely, valiantly, successfully on the side of Britain during the French and Indian War, and they won a big victory. And France was driven out of North America. Now, to people like George Washington, this was a great thing because it would open up the back country of Virginia in the Ohio Valley. And Washington wanted to – Washington had bought some land out there and expected to settle people on the land, and this was part of his business plan. And then the British decide, no, we're not going to allow that. We're not going to allow sales of land. We're not going to allow any new settlements out in the Ohio Valley. The reason the British did that was they wanted to cut back on their defense spending in the colonies, and they knew that when settlers went out into that region, there would be fights with the Indians, and the soldiers would be have to go to the defense of the settlers. So they say, we can prevent this happening by preventing the settlers from going out there. But people like Washington, Benjamin Franklin, owned land out in Ohio. They said, wait a minute, that's what we fought the French for. So we have done our job, and now you're depriving us of the fruits of the victory. So that was one of the first things that caused people like Washington, who, like uh, Franklin, was a really unlikely rebel. He was very successful. He was wealthy. He didn't need this, you know, all of the, the the challenge that would go along with declaring independence, all the risk to his own life. But he concluded at that point that the interests of Britain were no longer the interests of the American colonies, and so the American colonies were going to have to take things into their own hands and declare independence. So I'm looking at this, and, and you do say in, in, your, uh, in your research that I was shocked. Washington condemned the Boston Tea Party. Benjamin Franklin condemned it. So, yes. Yeah, so the thing is that they saw that this was an act of vandalism that tarnished the cause that they were aiming for. Because one of the things that Washington, Franklin, Jefferson, the rest stated down to the moment of independence is what we are fighting for, what we are standing for here in the American colonies is our rights as Englishmen. And the British government in London is depriving us of those rights. And so we want to maintain the moral high ground. And then when this gang, this mob in Boston, destroys this cargo of millions of dollars worth of tea, that simply makes us all look bad. It allows the British government to say, that George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, you are just like those Sons of Liberty mobsters who overthrew the tea. So interesting. Um, Lastly, never did you think that being a historian would put you in the eye of the storm, and not you personally, but your your business. We are rewriting history, reexamining history, and I'm seeing as in your introduction, I saw the New York Times story that 1619 is not – they weren't content with that project, making it a series to win awards. Um, and then they come out with there's all these things were blatantly untrue, and they told them ahead of time weren't true. Now it's a part of a curriculum, and now we understand it's going to be a book to continue to try to 
to foster a lot of their beliefs. Do you believe that America started in 1619 or 1776? Well, here's the thing. If you want to know what made America like the rest of the world, focus on 1619, because slavery was common everywhere in the world, and Americans in Virginia in 1619 brought in slaves. So basically no big deal at the time. If you want to know what made America different, what made America unique, what made America the country it is today, 1776 is your moment because at that point, Americans say, we're different. Here's what we stand for. So the dates are both important. But if you're looking at what makes America unique, what makes America worthy of emulation, 1776 is definitely your year. If you read the 1619 series, one thing they say is America fought the Revolutionary War to keep slaves because of the Somerset Agreement. Uh, the British got rid of it in 1760. There's a problem with that premise, isn't there? Oh, there's a huge problem that British the slavery was still quite legal in most of the British Empire, and the British didn't abolish it for another 60 years. And so the Americans were not fighting to defend slavery. In fact, in the Declaration of Independence, in the original draft, Thomas Jefferson condemned the British for what he said that the British imposition of slavery on the American colonies. So the Founding Fathers all thought slavery was a bad deal, and they thought that it would not fit with republicanism, the new set of values that they're embracing. They couldn't quite figure out how to get rid of it, and that's going to take some time. But if there had been no American Revolution, it's not as though slavery was going to go away. Slavery lasted, as I say, in the British Empire until the 1830s. And lastly, how do you handle that question? You probably get it quite often, especially when you tackle the colonial era, how could the smartest men maybe in the world at the time not come out with a, come up with a plan to rid the continent of, or at least the 13 colonies of slavery, even if they did sunset slave trade? Well, one of the reasons was that what Thomas Jefferson uh, basically made his trio of rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, was in other formulations, life, liberty, and property. And slaves under that regime were property. So how can you deprive people of property? That was the question. Another question was, how can southern economies, which, as you noted earlier, it was in the southern states that most of the slaves resided, how could they run the southern economies without slavery? Now, they hoped that slavery was on its way out because tobacco, the principal cash crop of the South, was wearing out the soil. And George Washington himself was getting out of the cultivation of tobacco and planting wheat. And that shift would probably by itself sunset slavery, because while tobacco requires a great deal of hands-on cultivation yeah. for many months out of the year, wheat is something you just plant in the spring and come back five months later and harvest, and that's that. What ended slavery in the North was not a fit of morality, but the changing nature of the economy. And slavery no longer became useful to the northern economy. People like Washington believed that that same evolution would take place in the South. Now, it didn't because the cotton gin made cotton profitable in a way that it hadn't been before. But nobody in the 1770s foresaw that. So interesting. I, it's, did you, can you believe what you do, do for a living would be so much a part of the news? Oh, well, you know, for somebody who's in the, the history trade, and, and by the way, congratulations on your new book, Brian. Thank but you. But for those of us, you know, who do history, it's, 
it's great that people are suddenly, again, interested in history. It's a little bit dismaying, though, that the interest derives primarily from from politics. I know. And can we use history to make a political point? And I think you can. All I can do there is just say it's more complicated than you think. And and hit them with facts, right? I mean, the best thing you could do is say, no, this is the real, this is what happened, and let people make their judgment. Your book is so important. Yeah, and and then you you have that in your head. Um, Yeah, so that's my approach in my books. That's my approach in my teaching. These are the facts, dear reader, dear student. You make up your own mind on this, but make sure you have the facts before you make up your mind. I do wake up every day. Uh, happy to be in this country. And the more I study, the more I am, even though I know we're not perfect. Uh, The name of his brand new book is Our First Civil War, Patriots and Loyalists in the American Revolution. H.W. Brands, it's always great to talk to you. Congratulations. Thanks, Brian. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. With us in government, we campaign with the plan. Uppercase T, uppercase P, the plan. And then the environment is such that we're expected to defend the plan. Even when the first time we roll it out, there may be some glitches and it's time to reevaluate and then do it again. Is that crazy? The vice president of the United States meeting with Macron today and his wife, former teacher, I guess. Uh, that's another story. But in, in making an announcement, trying to patch up uh, men fences after the nuclear deal was cut out from underneath the French and given to us, it was a good move. But the way they handled it just showed total amateurism. So she's over there trying to uh, mend fences after the president really did all the work. And then she sits there with a mask on in a small environment coming up with, I don't know, something out of context. But she's putting on a French accent. It's some Bugs Bunny commercial. I mean, what is she doing? Who is she talking to that said that's a good idea? Can you imagine if somebody was introduced, you're the president or the vice president, and use a fake American accent, kind of mocking it? I don't know. It's crazy. But almost everything she does seems wrong. And she clearly can't touch trust her instincts. You would think of a former... Attorney General, the former senator from California, the one who ran for president miserably, terrible organization. They gets picked vice president. She'll be doing this for about a year now. You think about all the speeches she made, you think that she'd have it down instinctively without a script or with a script. But I sit there, I can list all the missteps that she's had. It's uh, job security for Joe, uh, Joe Biden. No one's going to push him out knowing that uh, vice president's waiting. I mean, some people say that was with Quayle and Bush 41, but but Vice President Quayle was qualified. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, <laughs> welcome back, everybody. Uh, instead of focusing on today and tomorrow and yesterday when it comes to news, what about where it all started? How about our first president and our commanding general? Nathaniel Philbrick did just that. National Book Award winner and New York Times bestselling author. has got a brand new book out, Travels with George, in search of Washington and his legacy by going into his footsteps, the best that he can reconstruct and knew instinctively from his own personal research. Uh, Nathaniel, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Brian. Look, I love this concept. You decided to, the best you can, uh, reassemble Washington's journeys. Why? 
Right. Well, you know, I had finished my third book about the American Revolution, and I was done with war and bloodshed, but I just had to find out what happened to Washington next. And I was kind of sick of hanging out in my office, uh, <laughs> working, uh, you know, nonstop or in the archives. I wanted to get out and see the country I'd been writing about for all these years. And, uh, you know, I knew about Washington's travels as president, where he decided he had, you know, there were 13 essentially independent states. He had to do something to unify this country. So he went on these series of road trips, uh, starting in New England and then uh, all the way up to Kittery Point, Maine, and south all the way to, to Savannah. And I thought, well, my wife had just retired. Uh, we had a new puppy named Dora. And I do my John Steinbeck invitation, uh, who in Travels with Charlie traveled the country in search of America. I wanted to travel the country with Melissa and Dora uh, following Washington's footsteps. So your first stop was? Well, our first stop was Mount Vernon. And, uh, you know, Washington was probably the most reluctant president we've ever had. He really did not want to do it. He knew how hard it was going to be. And, uh, hey, he had won the revolution. But, uh, you know, so he, he departed from there, and so did we. And so we uh, – Mount Vernon, I'm, I'm happy to report, is dog-friendly. And so we were, you know, walking the grounds with, with Dora and uh, sort of channeling Washington as he set out on uh, the, the tour that would take him to New York, where he's going to be inaugurated president. Right. Which New York is where the first, uh, essentially, the president's house was. But uh, he also took a trip to Long Island, and you believe to thank, because covertly, uh, his spying that helped him out for a few years there. Yeah, it's it's a topic you're fairly familiar with, yeah. Brian. Uh, and you know, I was following both in your footsteps and George. But um, yeah, it's it's the tour that is a conundrum. Uh, there's absolutely no newspaper coverage of it. For four days, he uh, he he toured Western Long Island, uh, getting as far west as Setauket, New York. And what was he doing? Um, uh, it, well, what he was doing was uh, visiting uh, the, the sort of the nerve centers of the Culper Spy Ring, uh, where uh, uh, messages were were uh, delivered from uh, a supposed loyalist in New York all the way to an inn in Setauket, uh, New York, where it was then uh, they were sailed across Long Island, uh, eventually getting their way to Washington at, at the Hudson River. And, Washington was, and just a few others, were the only ones who knew of the identities of these spies, and uh, which was still a secret to the spies' own families, because if this revolution should fail, uh, they'd be in big trouble if Britain came back into power. And so this was secret. This was a way for him to thank uh, these, these people who had been so important in winning the American Revolution, but keeping it under the radar. And so it was just a fascinating uh, journey to follow. So, and you put your own reflections on that too. And you also you also mentioned that he goes to uh, Boston, and at, at the time, there's times where he was not able to stay in places. Other times, he thought when it was a public house, it was a private house, right? Yeah, yeah. He had made the decision from the beginning that he was not going to uh, purposely stay at people's private homes. He was going to stay in public taverns. And this is when 
public taverns were kind of the uh, roadside motels of his day. The beds were terrible. The food was worse. Uh, flea infested, all of this kind of thing. And he had a, a, a very small entourage, you know, just a little over a half dozen people. And uh, he traveled by horse-drawn carriage. And there were times in New England where he'd knock on the door at night looking for a place to stay and not be recognized and told he couldn't stay there and would have to go find another tavern. I mean, can you imagine this? This is a long way from traveling in Air Force One. Well, you I mean, he was out there. He was the unifying character. Underneath, he saw the rivalry take root, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. And he knew how differing the views they had of this country, one with the power of the president, the other one, um, the other one who saw it more widespread. Uh, and they knew they were going to be locking horns. How did Washington look to bring the country together the best possible in his travels? And what do you think he discovered in doing so? Yeah, well, he realized that this political divide was coming, and uh, you know he had kept it under the lid for a year or two, but it, w- it was coming, and it was happening in his own cabinet. And what he wanted to do before that honeymoon period was over was to create a sense of nationhood. By uh, this is before mass media, you know, before you could turn on your TV and see the president talking to you. He figured he had to go to each as many of the towns and villages and cities in this country as possible, and and show the people in person uh, that uh, there was now something bigger than their town, their state. There was something called the United States of America, and he was their leader. And so, uh, what you know, he did this. You know, the, Washington slept here is kind of a a, a, you know, a humorous catchphrase, but what we began to understand was it's a tremendous amount of work as he went from state to state, establishing a sense of national unity and national pride, and so that when the partisan divide split wide open uh, in the years after uh, he took these tours, he, uh, he had built a country that was built to last, that would transcend any one leader uh, to be a, a nation of laws. When you're doing this, you have you go to newspaper and see what the coverage is like, and you did discover, am I right, that almost everywhere he went, there were big crowds. Yes, yes. You know, one of the things that we did before uh, we left, I uh, uh, made a list of all the towns he visited. There are more than a hundred of them, and reached out to the librarians and our historical societies in each town, and was began to ask them what memories are there of George Washington's travels. And so I began to get uh, diaries, newspaper articles from the 19th century when people would say their memories uh, of, of Washington's visit. And it was clear this was big news for everyone. I mean, can you imagine the president, uh, not only the president, but the, the general who had won the American Revolution arriving in your town. And so he, he would follow these little country roads. Often they would be lined with the people as they watched him make his way to the next town. And so uh, to make a, a, a bigger show of it, uh, he would often get out of his carriage uh, dressed in his general's uniform, mount his great big white horse, and ride down Main Street to just thunderous acclaim. And so it really made an impression, and it really made people realize they were something, part of something that was bigger than their town. So along the way, you, you even though as much as Washington lives up to the hype, he has this leadership ability, he has the track record, he had sacrifice uh, for this country, not a perfect person. In what ways no. stood out to you that he was human? 
Yeah. Well, you know, all sorts of ways. For one, he was a slaveholder. Um, you know, he was he became a slaveholder at 11 years old when his father died and he inherited a couple of enslaved people. And yet um uh, and you know, he by the after the revolution, he realized that, you know, the that slavery was not a good thing for this union of states he was trying to create that at some point that would have to be dealt with and yet he you know was born a slaveholder and at mount vernon uh, there were more than 300 enslaved people roughly half of them were owned by washington the other half were owned by the estate of of martha's deceased husband and so you know it was a part of his life and it was only upon his death that he would free his enslaved workers but you know that's not a little small accomplishment given where he began you know he would be the only slaveholding founding father to free his enslaved workers he was making a statement and yet he was not perfect um, you know he grew up with this institution and so i think we need to look at him and realize you know th- this is a complicated legacy uh, that 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 our country comes from and it's a complicated legacy that Washington came from, but there at the very beginning of our history, no matter how you see it, stands George Washington. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot, a lot of, in the South, they would often say, "Yeah, yeah, you guys, you you don't have slaves, but you don't need them." Right? You know, this is what I was born into. This is our economy to try to say, right. you know, John Adams, don't be so high and mighty. You have a totally different lifestyle. And you know, and one of the things we realized in this, Rhode Island, you know, the, the last state to join the Union, Rhode Island um, was the, uh, the slave trading capital of the United States, of New England state. Uh, the, they they would um, the Rhode Island farms provided the Southern states with many of the the provisions they needed. Uh, they were they've been called the commissary of the South. This was a national issue. You know, we have a tendency to see Southern uh, slavery as as all southern but no the, everyone was complicit there were textile mills throughout uh, 19th century america using uh, southern uh, cotton to weave fabrics this this was you know is this this is something that transcended any right. one section so uh, nathaniel philbrick is our our guest you got to go out and grab his book it's called travels with george in search of washington and his legacy so nathaniel you also go through and look at maybe what Washington would think today, the way we are divided. But we were divided then. James Monroe, you point out, was a big critic of uh, Washington, although he looked up to him and obviously mentored by him in many ways. But he became a conciliator, too, when he became president, did a very similar thing. He traveled around and wanted people to see their president, to make them part of a country. When you look at Washington, he's even though the issues are different, the divisions were still there, and the goal was to bring them together, right? Absolutely. You know, we, we you know, sometimes like to think of the past as a better time or whatever. But no, by the second term of his presidency, America was as divided, uh, you know, the partisanship divide was as ugly as anything we're seeing today. But he still believed that it was worth reaching out across the, the divide and trying to uh, see people as part of one country. You know, and you're right, Monroe was uh, one of Washington's fiercest critics when Washington was alive. And yet 30 years after Washington's death, when Monroe becomes president, he evokes Washington and um, uh, has his own tour very much in the same fashion as Washington did uh, in the previous century. And so I think this is the lasting legacy of Washington. You know, no matter how bad it seems, 
the union is something we need to hold near and dear if we are going to continue to be a country uh, that calls itself the United States of America. So you wrote three uh, books about Washington. Is, what did you take away from this trip uh, that you didn't know before? Yeah, well, you know, what I began to see is, you know, yes, there's Washington, the the general, the president, and he's often seen as kind of remote, you know, the opposite of a backslapper. But in following Washington and reading his diary and reading the accounts of, of, of citizens who, who, you know, saw him coming, you begin to see a different kind of Washington, the traveler, the human being, someone who would get off his horse and help uh, some workers finish the uh, building the one-room schoolhouse in <laughs> Oyster Bay, New York, these kinds of things. And so, you know, this was a, also a man who would say, I am president, but I am also only a man. Uh, he really wanted people to realize he was one of them. He wasn't anything extraordinary other than the fact that he was George Washington. But he had that presence in that celebrity by almost all accounts, correct? People felt him oh, before absolutely. they saw him. Yeah, you know, we've all encountered famous people in some way or another. Washington had a charisma, uh, a sense of self that was off the charts. Uh, uh, his his general, uh, uh, Henry Knox, would once say it was almost supernatural when he would come into a room. Uh, you know, And so he used that star power to create a government that would transcend the ego of any person. He used that to create a country of laws. And for that, I think we should all be forever grateful. And lastly, just to him as a person, he had the natural leadership skills. He was fearless in battle. He made some mistakes as a colonel, didn't make those same mistakes as a general, able to put together the army and change tactics in the middle of a war and become basically a guerrilla force that waited its time and was ready to strike and gain momentum. I get it. Was able to work with the French uh, generals in order to be successful. Lafayette, I understand it. But he also had vulnerabilities. Is it true? And I don't want to put something in your mind that you don't feel you can get on board with. But he always felt a little intimidated by the intellect and the, uh, the education of Jefferson, of Madison, of uh, the other founding fathers, of Benjamin Franklin, who are much more learned, had much more formal schooling. Absolutely. You know, he had not had a, a formal education. And when his, his father died and there wasn't the money to send him to England for, you know, that, that, that kind of education. And he always felt a sense of inadequacy when it came to his education. But I think that's what really made him the great yeah. man he would become. Because, you know, he didn't, he was not the opposite of pretentious in an academic way, in an intellectual way. He wanted to make things work. He didn't have to be the, the smartest person in the room. He wanted to be the one that made things happen. So listen, uh, Nathaniel got out of the house and wrote a book about it, and he did it in a very special way in an extraordinary book. Uh, it's certainly to win awards. Nathaniel Philbricks, his latest book is Travels with George in Search of Washington and His Legacy. Uh, what a great thing to bring with you, especially if you're looking to get the book on tape and you know you're going to be on the road if you actually, uh, actually can get a few days off. Uh, congratulations, Nathaniel. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, Brian, thanks. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, same here. Congratulations on the book. When we come back, I'll finish up with you. one 408 The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call 833-600-GOLD to secure your retirement. He goes, do you ever watch film? And I said, no. 
I don't. It's I just run by guys. If, I, if I'm feeling good, I'm feeling good. I do watch keep it film when, when the team is showing it, and I actually do go up to Tom because I know Tom watches like I don't know 40 hours of film a week. I go, Tom, who's covering me this week? What type of coverages are they doing? That is so funny. Uh, Rob Kronkowski talking about not watching film. He has Brady watch the film and tell him who's covering him this week. That's part of that new Peyton Manning, Eli Manning show where they basically sit on separate couches and analyze the game like two elite quarterback brothers. People really like that, though. It has a it's lot of great. buzz. Oh, it's fantastic. I, I got to watch the whole game. I only just dipped in and out. And they have other celebrities call in. I think Barkley called in the first week. Um, um, uh, uh, Travis Kelsey called in, I think, this week. They had a few great guys uh, call in, too. So, um, and a lot of them are active players. Uh, it makes me wonder if there's even more to know. We already played that liner. You missed it. Oh, really? You did, oh, yeah. you did in the beginning? Okay, sorry. <laughs> hey, uh, we have uh, Oscar De La Hoya this. Let's, uh, yeah, let me talk about the Oscar De La Hoya story. How about this? The 48-year-old De La Hoya leaving Louisiana with his girlfriend, Holly Saunders, on TMZ, asked the boxing legend how he felt about being hospitalized with COVID, even though he was vaccinated. He said it was five days of hell, but what he really wanted to do to talk about was the re- returning to the ring. You know, I'm going to call out for my next fight, Floyd Medweather. He says his life is not fulfilling. I watched him with Mike Tyson on his podcast. He says his life has not been fulfilled since he left boxing, yet he's got one of this, this huge promotion company. It sounds like he needs a psychiatrist. I know. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we have a lot more uh, more to know, including Harold Ford coming out and telling Democrats, take the bipartisan package and put the other one on hold. Take the win. Hey, listen, AOC. This is a Fox News Radio special from Fox Nation, the president and the freedom fighter, hosted by Brian Kilmeade. April 14th, 1865, Ford's Theater, and that very balcony box is where Abraham Lincoln would be shot by delusional actor John Wilkes Booth, struck down at the age of 56. He was perhaps our most consequential president, maybe our finest president. He took over a fractured nation. His story could only happen in America. His rise, unthinkable, unfathomable. And when he was all said and done, he was trying to make us live up to our Constitution. Not freedom for some, but freedom for all. In that journey, he wasn't alone. from the day he was born in 1818 to when he escaped from slavery in 1838 to when he passed away at the age of 78, Frederick Douglass has been fighting, fighting for freedom, liberty, and equality for all, not just for himself, but for the entire country. Together with Lincoln, they'll be emerging as the two most indispensable men in the most important time in American history. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. That is the balcony where John Wilkes Booth would jump from onto the stage, out the back door, and briefly get away. For Abraham Lincoln, he would be brought across the street where he would take his last breath. But this is not the story about the assassination of Lincoln or the heart attack that Frederick Douglass suffered at the age of 78. This is a story about how both men lived and efforted to make America a more perfect union. And to tell that story effectively, you have to start at both of their humble beginnings. 
Abraham Lincoln. Everybody in this country knows his name and around the world because what he did as president of the United States with the Civil War, becoming the great emancipator. But the biggest question is, how did a guy become the person he became, knowing he grew up in abject poverty, knowing that he was born to two illiterate parents for the most part, and had only one formal year of schooling by his own account? Well, to do that, we have to go back to his youth, not where he was born in Kentucky, but where he really grew up from the age of seven to 21 in Indiana. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that Bill Bartell spent a lifetime trying to figure out. Lincoln's cabin, the one they lived in most of the time, was gone by the time Lincoln became president. There's still disagreement about how many structures the Lincoln's right. had. So Lincoln's first had this three-sided camp. I think very quickly, they built a kind of primitive round log cabin. And then some disagree, I think they built a more substantial cabin, which kind of is what this represents. Just say, they wanted to hear for the grounds to give you an idea what a cabin looked like, yeah. not necessarily his. Right. How many people would lived in Lincoln's house, do we know? Thomas Lincoln was a generous person, and there were always relatives coming, and especially Hank's relatives. So there would be more than eight living here uh, at, uh, at different times. This is where he lived the age seven to 21. One quarter of his life. Just two years after the Lincoln family moved to Indiana, Nancy Lincoln became gravely ill and passed away. Young Abraham was only nine years old. This for me is the centerpiece of this whole area. It is, and it was a focal point for many, many years. This is a grave of Lincoln's mother, Nancy Hanks Lincoln. You can see she died October 5th. 1818. This was a cemetery that uh, was laid out with the time when people were dying from the milk sickness. But you mentioned it was the type of death was painful, but it was slow. So you almost think that maybe they had a chance to say goodbye. They did. And Dennis Hanks, who was there, says that she called her children in and said, be good to each other and your father and do good things. And we know how any seven or eight year old kid would be affected when their mom dies. Yeah. Certainly affected him. Yes. And he oh, wasn't definitely. shy about talking about it. Young Abe took his mother's dying words to heart. She had always stressed the importance of education to her son, and he never forgot it. I guess today we'd call him gifted. He had a vision, he had ambition, he had desire to learn what he could learn. Wasn't always easy. He said his mind was like a piece of steel. Very difficult to scratch anything in it, but once it's there, you can't rub it out. And he tried to improve himself. You mentioned, and it's been mentioned, that his first books were The Life of Washington, that he read over and over, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, and yes. Robinson Crusoe, yeah. and Arabian Nights. Does that help formulate, do you think, the speeches he would later make and the person he would become? Well, I think so. Uh, you left out the Bible. And the Bible was probably the most important book that he read. But he wasn't a churchgoer. But the Bible was wonderful stories. And he loved the language. Uh, and, and that was the book he had most access to. Lincoln, despite his passion to learn, still had to live a life full of hard labor. At times, his father was abusive. He was hired out to other farmers by his dad, Thomas Lincoln. Bill, but when you look around, you read about his life. You have this ability to imagine because you read, but in reality, you're working. 
Your dad was actually uh, licensing you out to other farms to work during the day. Which was a common practice. But why didn't that suck the life out of him? Why didn't that damage his imagination? Why didn't let them feel as though he'd never get anywhere? Why did he see hope when so many others saw a stop? Because he had that ambition. And he, he told people here, he told his friends that he wasn't going to be a farmer. He wasn't going to split rails all his life. Now we are on the Lincoln farm, right? We are. Lincoln split rails here like he did in Illinois. Then when they're trying to sell Lincoln to the GOP, the Republican Party, they brought up rail splitter. Right. right. So Right. And yeah, it and was one of those things about his past. It was true. Well, Lincoln, I think for a while, was kind of embarrassed by this life until he realized there was a real political advantage to it. Lincoln was given more responsibility during his teen years. Thomas Lincoln, Abraham's father, was not exactly inspiring his son to get out of the rail-splitting backcountry life that he himself was living. But Lincoln came out of that life wanting something more. At the age of 27, he became a lawyer. Did you see the makings of a lawyer in him? From what you've studied, did you say, I'm seeing the attributes of a successful <laughs> Midwestern lawyer, prairie lawyer? Well, one of the things that people don't understand is that there were educated people living in this area. Certainly he was exposed to lawyers. He was exposed to politicians who uh, could inspire him. Now, I don't know that he was gonna be a lawyer when he left here, but he was gonna be some kind of professional, I'm sure. What do you want people to know about the Abraham Lincoln that you know? Well, I want, first of all, to know that Abraham Lincoln lived in Indiana. A lot of people don't know that. Lincoln spent 14 years here. I'm asked a lot, what difference does it make that Lincoln lived here? Think in your own life. Think when you were seven. Think when you were 21. Think about how those 14 years influenced you to become who you are today in your values, your attitudes, your beliefs, all those things. Now, they weren't all set at that time, but you're still a product to a large degree of those 14 years. As tough as Abraham Lincoln's first 14 years were, Frederick Douglass had it a whole lot worse. He never knew his parents. He was born a slave. He had to escape to establish his freedom, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He would want freedom for himself and freedom for all. And his life was so significant, there'd be statues like this located in Rochester, New York, and around the country commemorating all he accomplished. Indeed, he was one of America's most indispensable men. More of the President and the Freedom Fighter with Brian Kill Meet coming up. Now, back to the President and the Freedom Fighter with Brian Kilmeade. When someone talks about Frederick Douglass's youth, how would you describe his youth? He began incarcerated, enslaved. His mother is living on a separate plantation from him, right? And so that, so that he doesn't have access to her. And his father is, is allegedly, you know, was, was owner of his mother, which is one of the grave tragedies, right, of, of American history. So, Doug, the life of Frederick Douglass, born roughly 1818. What kind of life did he have as a kid? He's mixed race. 
He didn't know really who his father was in any meaningful way. His mother would just come to him at bedtime and make sure he could fall asleep because she worked a different plantation. So he was, uh, he was a slave child and he felt the brutalness of slavery. And yet the key to his success, and it's key to anybody out there listening, is literacy, literacy, literacy. He started learning to read and the reading is what liberated him. Where does the thirst to learn to read and write come from? Many slave owners did not want blacks to be literate. They did not want them to read. They, but it was yeah, illegal. It was illegal. But Douglas realized that reading and writing was, the, was just the, the crux of life. He was brilliant. What he did to learn how to read and write, what does that mean? Douglas must have had some kind of innate audacity. Take the ABCs and, and really remarkably make them into what we will later know as the greatest oration of our history. The ability for him to, even at later points in his life, teach others the ABCs and give them uh, not just the ABCs, but teach them how to write. Because Douglas does become, in my thought, one of the greatest writers of all time. Growing up, you look at this, this young man, you have to think, well, he has no shot, obviously. But he was determined to matter. And he would find a way to learn how to spell, find a way to learn how to write. When he started getting the education, what changed? Yeah. Douglas's pursuit of education was not just a pursuit of book smarts, right? It was, it was a pursuit of language that would allow him to name quite quite accurately what was happening in the American context. In 1838, Douglas escaped from slavery and traveled north. He eventually married Anna Murray, a free black woman, and worked on the docks in Massachusetts. He continued his self-education and was mentored by esteemed abolitionists. He started his first anti-slavery newspaper, The North Star, and wrote his best-selling biography, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. He writes the famous narrative really to remind people that his public orations of being raised in slavery is not false. He gave exact places and who his owners were, and that allowed people to start realizing he really was up from slavery. Frederick Douglass called this home up until 1872, yeah. Rochester. How is it commemorated? There's 13 statues and an airport named after the great Frederick Douglass. The Institute of African African-American Studies at the University of Rochester is called the Frederick Douglass Institute of African African-American Studies, which I lead. All of these things, right, represent the meaning of Frederick Douglass, not only to Rochester, but to the world. As a liberator, as a person who really believed in that North Star, a person who really believed that the country's potential is greater than it knows. Who was this great man who spoke not only great words, but created newspapers and magazines, who lectured all over the world, and who, in fact, put his money where his mouth was? As flawed as America was for the African-American, he didn't want another country. He wanted to make his stand here. It, almost in biblical terms. He saw the promise of America, which is hard to do when you're being beaten. So Douglas's gift was he never let the slave owners own him. In telling the story of the president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, you have to go over inflection points, turning points for both men. And believe it or not, for both it happened right here in downtown New York at Cooper Union. 
1863 was one of five speeches for Frederick Douglass, but his most impactful. It was right after the Emancipation Proclamation. For Abraham Lincoln, it was February 27th. It was 1860. He had just wowed the world with his Douglass-Lincoln debates, famed just months earlier. But now it was time to wow a New York audience. An invitation he got, an invitation he took. He got a standing ovation. When the speech was reprinted, he got national recognition. He would end up the 16th president of the United States of America. David Eisenbach knows this story all too well. So David, how special is Cooper Union? Why does it matter so much? In 1860, if you want to make a big splash in New York politics, you did it right here. It was founded the previous year by Peter Cooper, whose idea was to provide education for anybody regardless of class or gender or race or ethnicity. And it was a real hub for intellectual and political activity. And in 1860, People are wondering about this new party, this new Republican Party, and who is this guy that has come out of nowhere? Before we talk about what Lincoln said and spoke about in Cooper Union, Lincoln was on a bit of a roll. He has his comeback. Those Lincoln-Douglas debates are legendary even today. They were happening right before. What did it do for Lincoln? Well, it really kind of put him on the map of Republican politics. Here's a guy who almost took out the sitting senator, uh, Democrat, Stephen Douglas of Illinois. When he goes to the Cooper Union, speaking to a more secular, sort of intellectual, pragmatic, if you will, audience, he moves it into a territory of saying, well, we need to do the right thing because the right thing is going to make us a stronger country. But let us have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, let us dare to do our duty as we understand it. And that's where he comes up with the great line, right makes might. This speech was impactful. It lives in so-called infamy. But he put the work in. Lincoln didn't get lucky. He hit the books. What was he looking to find? One thing he looks at is the Founding Fathers and their positions on the issue of whether slavery can spread into the West. And most of them, the majority of them, were against that. So he said, we're more, we the Republicans are more in line with the Founding Fathers than the Democrats. And then secondly, he's looking at what are the practical implications of just giving into the Democrats on this one, allowing slavery to spread. And he warns that this country will remain divided and they're going to want us to no longer speak out against slavery. So it's going to infringe upon our freedoms as Americans. So by protecting slavery, we're going to destroy the very spirit of the United States. When they actually started hearing the words and how he was framing the issue of slavery, the people thought, wow, he's got a handle on where this country needs to go and the Democrats have something to worry about. The other argument that he wanted to hit was that the Democrats were the radical party. They're the ones and many of their followers in the South who said, you know, if any Republican gets elected in November, we're going to secede. Abraham Lincoln soon became the 16th president of the United States, and the southern states followed up on their word. Soon after the election, South Carolina is the first state to secede, followed by six more southern states, forming the Confederate States of America. For Lincoln, secession was not an option. Shortly thereafter, April 12, 1861, the war was on. But... At the same time, he was not an abolitionist. He was not in favor of getting rid of slavery at that moment in his career. We also have quotes of him saying remarks that are racist. But the fact is that Abraham Lincoln evolves in the course of the Civil War. He begins to kind of have an awakening about, A, the need to abolish slavery and a need to sort of move beyond this divided nation along racial lines to a more integrated, connected, and politically equitable nation. So the man changed, and I think he does deserve credit for that. 
For Frederick Douglass, Lincoln's win in 1860 was all about hope. But when he didn't immediately free the slaves, a message of appeasement in exchange for reunification, Douglass seethed. It wasn't until three years, through a bloody civil war, on January 1st, 1863, that Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. The big moment for Frederick Douglass happens in 1863. Most right. people think it's going to be a euphoric speech, was it? Well, not exactly euphoric, but... Most people kind of thought he was going to really bash Lincoln for the Emancipation Proclamation, that the Emancipation didn't go far enough. And the reason why many abolitionists felt this way is because this was an executive order. But what Frederick Douglass said in this speech was, you know what, that's as good as we're going to get right now. But the fact is, if you freed the slaves in Virginia, the slaves in Maryland, which stuck with the Union even though it was a slave state, they're not going to remain slaves for long. The president may be slow, but he is sure once he stakes his claim, he won't retreat from it. This is the beginning of the end. More of The President and the Freedom Fighter with Brian Kilmeade coming up. If you are enjoying this radio special, get the podcast and all of your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. You're listening to a Fox News radio special from Fox Nation, the president and the freedom fighter. The story of how two American heroes, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, formed a friendship and in the process changed the entire course of history. Once again, your host, Brian Kilmeade. David, I don't know what Frederick Douglass did after his great speech in 1863, but do you know what Lincoln did after his historic speech in 1860? Absolutely. He uh, went for a beer. At uh, McSorley's Old Ale House, established 1854. Really? Same one? Same one. Let's be like Lincoln. Let's do it. What do you say? So after the speech, they come in here. You see that chair? Yeah. That's Peter Cooper's chair, the founder of the Cooper Union. That was his chair when he came to his favorite watering hole, and Abraham Lincoln himself sat in that chair. All right, so he sat in that chair back there. Should we grab two beers and go back? Definitely. Cheers. David, this place is amazing. It looks like it's 1854 in here at It's It's like walking back in time. You can't tell the story of the president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul without focusing on the centerpiece, and that's the Civil War, a war in which Abraham Lincoln wanted to do everything to avoid. But there's no better place to tell that story than right here in South Carolina, the state that was the first to secede right after Lincoln was elected. And who better to tell that story than the two sitting senators of South Carolina, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott, doing the same job from very different backgrounds. Why is it important if I'm going to tell the story of the Civil War to go to South Carolina? Well, the Civil War started here almost at the embodiment of this nation's greatest divide and the unification of this nation all starts here. It's this spot where it all started. Senator, you realize that growing up? Yeah, I remember saying the, uh, we're talking about the Civil War, and I said Civil War, and my teacher's third, fourth grade, I can't remember, took a ruler, hit me on the hand, and said, it's the war between the states. Different perspective. What about for you, Tim? Where did you grow up? What was history like for an African-American kid? Yeah, growing up here in Charleston, uh, history was really important, always has been one of the most important places where slaves came through. I think two-thirds or three-quarters of all slaves early on came through Charleston. And so you were always...
always immersed in history. Uh, telling the whole story, I think, is really important. I don't think I got that early in my education. The whole story is that progress takes patience. I love the tension between Frederick Douglass and President Lincoln, and Douglass should have been, rightfully so, angry at the lack of progress pushing Lincoln to move as quickly as possible. And at the same time, you, you have to admire and respect Lincoln's patience. His primary objective was to keep the nation together. And frankly, it took the Civil War in order for us to unite the nation. When this started, they were saying this wasn't a war in the very beginning to free slaves. And if Lincoln had said that, he wouldn't have had much of a Union army. When I grew up in a segregated school, we were taught it was an honorable endeavor and it just didn't work out. The truth of the matter is that it was about slavery. Um, I'm glad we lost and I'm from South Carolina. I'm trying to learn about how a nation would get big, so divided and go to war with each other. When it came to the Civil War, yes. as an African-American kid, how did they tell that story and how did it make you feel? I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard the, the war of northern aggression uh, growing up here. And the truth is that that frames the history very differently. And, and as I became more familiar with it, you became really, you understood why we had such a, just an atrocity and a challenge that birthed a nation that all of us can be proud of. I mean, think back to those days in the Civil War where brothers literally fought blood brothers. Fathers fought their kids because they wanted the Declaration of Independence and this notion that all men were created equal to be real. I'm glad that I was able to see not both sides of that war, but both sides of the issue that progress requires sacrifice. And sometimes it requires taking on your own side. And for men in those days to do that, so that the three of us can have this conversation, is one of the most powerful yet seldom told part of the Civil War and the story of bringing America together. So you, you talk about uh, Frederick Douglass. Oh, yes. And he escapes to freedom seven years later. He's an international... Uh, rock star. Rock star, yes. giving speeches in Ireland and England and Scotland, and uh, and people can't believe it. And he shows the, the marks on his back from his days as a slave. Yes. And instead of saying, woe is me, I'm going to make the country better rather than leave the country. He came back home to America because he wanted to fight for all people to experience the freedom that he was enjoying. And so when you tell the whole story, America is nothing if it's not the story of amazing progress in very limited time. Frederick Douglass not only wanted to push for equality yes. and freedom, but he put his actions and his words together, and he went and met with the Secretary of War. He yes. met with the uh, President of the United States. He recruited yes. those. He urged for equal pay for equal soldiering. Absolutely. And one of the beauties of that recruitment efforts included his own two sons who served in the 54th. I was amazed at how important the American flag was. When they were being shot at, the African-American holding the flag doesn't want it to touch the soil because it was so important to defend our flag because it was defending our nation. And so part of that story, especially that should be told where we live today, is how those from Frederick Douglass to the 54th, they fought for our nation under our flag. Senator, why is this park important, not only to South Carolinians, but 
uh, to Americans. I can't think of a better place to experience history than in Charleston, than here at the Battery, both the horrific part of history and the beauty of history. But it's just amazing what is here. I mean, Fort Sumter, where there was shelled and we had a war, right? right? And then you look over here and you have a commemoration to the Confederate soldiers. Are you okay with having a tribute to Confederate soldiers, knowing you're an African-American whose ancestors are not looked on kindly, given the rights of citizens? Yeah, there's no doubt that that part of the history, the original sin of this country, needed to be addressed. And thank God we fought a war to address that issue. I think we should be very careful trying to cleanse all of history. I think you can actually remember history without celebrating it. And some of the statues should remind us of what we should never do again. Right. Uh, and then we have other statues of Lincoln and Frederick Douglass that should remind us of the boldness and, and the honor that men fought for this nation. Over here in the Battery is another important moment in American history. It's where the 54th Massachusetts Regiment Infantry was able to be engaged in battle really for the first time. The 54th was all black soldiers commanded by white officers. Aim! It wasn't an integrated Union Army, but the idea that the Union uh, allowed African Americans to fight for the cause proved to be a giant step forward because all the stereotypes of what a black man could and couldn't do were crushed. Right. right. Well, also, I, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't think about the fact that yeah, whether it was Lincoln and Douglas, whether it's Senator Graham and, and Tim Scott, People who don't look like each other coming together to work for a bigger cause than themselves is also part of the American story. And I, I don't know why we have to say black or white more than we say us. The White House looks a lot like it did back in 1860 when Abraham Lincoln was president. The big difference is security. Even though Confederate troops were just miles away in the middle of a civil war, not much of it. In fact, you could line up on that porch and hope the president would see you one-on-one. -on -one. That's exactly what Frederick Douglass decided to do. Meet the man he wrote so much about and at times was very critical of. He wondered if they'd have a chance to see each other. He wouldn't have to wait long. More of The President and the Freedom Fighter with Brian Kilmeade coming up. We're back with The President and the Freedom Fighter. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Set the scene, Civil War, Confederate soldiers miles away, but yet, what was the security like here? Maryland was a hotbed of secession. Virginia was already up in arms by the election um, of Lincoln. And here, which was called the Executive Mansion, you could just walk in the door and demand to see a president. So you have to imagine Lincoln sitting here, realizing that the whole country's coming apart at the seams, and he's in this very vulnerable position. He took over a divided country. Did he actually know what he was getting into? I don't think so, but Lincoln knew the law and he knew the Constitution backwards and forward. And so he realized when after Fort Sumner happened and that a lot of the country wasn't accepting him as president. 
And he correctly diagnosed union, 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 keep the country together, and then the abolition of slavery as the two grand causes of the Civil War. But it drove Douglas nuts that Abraham Lincoln was willing to cut a deal. Keep your slaves, let's just keep the country together. And that was part of his first inaugural. True? Absolutely true, Brian. And Lincoln always had ideas of, 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 of black colonization. And th this is something Douglas didn't like. Lincoln had power. He had to decide how to do all this, where Douglas was more of an evangelist. He was able to be a journalist, a writer, a provocateur, an abolitionist. And so they weren't on the same plane at the time of uh, the first inaugural. So they're not on the same plane. And why would they be? Because Lincoln's approach is keep the country together, and then I'll make it better. Douglas said, you can't have a country when you have half a country with slavery. Absolutely, Brian. They're kind of shadow boxing each other. They're feeling each other out. Lincoln made it clear that he'd like to have slavery abolished, but only in fits and starts. It's not till the Emancipation Proclamation that that real Lincoln steps forward, making slavery the um, cause. Frederick Douglass gets uh, urged, go see Lincoln. You have some issues with him, go see him. Find out what he needs. What must it have been like here, Doug, without the fence, without the security, with the porch? There were long lines of people wanting to meet the president, and Douglass wasn't bringing an entourage with him. He just made the walk from the rail station to here. But he dressed had, to the nines, Dressed right? to the nines, and he liked what he saw. He saw the Indiana dirt farmer in Abraham Lincoln. He saw the calluses. He saw that there was something uncorruptible about Lincoln. And so that was like a relief. It was like Douglas's uh, soul was healed in a way to know that we really are in the midst of something epic. And I can work in tandem with President Lincoln. Lincoln was smitten with Douglas. And you know, Douglas was stunned at how Lincoln could craft things like the Gettysburg Address. So in many ways, they're very similar people. They're using their oratory to move the masses. Frederick Douglass in his three meetings with Abraham Lincoln is going to be pushing him very hard for at least that first occasion. He says, I see injustice. It is my duty as an American citizen to do something about injustice as I see it. So he meets with the president, walks away, says, I'm not really sure that that was exactly what I wanted. He's, he knows President Lincoln is different than other presidents that he will meet with later. He says, the difference with President Lincoln, he will listen to you, he will disagree with you but he will listen to you. Despite the way America was then and maybe the world, Frederick Douglass wanted to be an American. And that's what people don't understand. I want to make America better. I don't want to go somewhere else. Can you describe that mindset? Absolutely. That's what I love about Frederick Douglass. I put him as ranking at the very top of great American figures because he said we're making our stand here, that yes, we grew up in slavery, but I believe in America's destiny, and that I believe that we can overcome all of that and we can start a new America. Douglas was about rebirth of America and reconciliation of America, and there's no better person for school kids to study than him. He transcends, you know, you know, race. It used to be we talk about Frederick Douglass on, you know, on Black History Month. Uh, but Martin Luther King's usually larger. Why don't we talk about Frederick Douglass all year round? Because he really is one of the founders of our modern republic.
it's phenomenal what happens. And with the things they're planning, like at their second meeting, there's this idea that you have this Indiana dirt farmer's son sitting down side by side with this formerly enslaved man, and they're plotting a revolution together in those moments, a revolution to remake America in accordance with that sense of justice for all people. These two are titans of their time by themselves, and we are just blessed as an American people that they came together in these moments, agreed and disagreed on many things, but we're left with their conversations that are still moving forward and still challenging us. What would Lincoln and Douglas say now if he saw America, Tim? You know, I, I, I think they would scratch their heads, pull on their hair a little bit. I can't do that with mine. But the truth is, I think they would be bewildered a little bit on the revisionist of history, those who revise history. It strikes me that two men who paid such a personal price for the progress of this nation, uh, sitting together, looking at the state of affairs, would wonder why we spend so much time talking about so little progress when there's so much progress completely visible. The question for me is, in light of what they did for the country, what's the appropriate response for us? How do we honor what they did? How do you honor people who are willing to die for, for a just cause? President Lincoln preserved the Union on his watch. Question for us, are we doing all we can to preserve the Union? If someone said to you, how do Frederick Douglass's lives and Abraham Lincoln's life intersect, what would you say? At some point, both of them believed in the possibility and potential of this country to be greater than it knows itself to be. And in many ways, right, both of them committed themselves to not only the emancipation of black people, but to the idea of the nation's emancipation. Why is it important to study both men today? Um, Lincoln's our number one president, and no matter how bad Joe Biden feels he has it, or Donald Trump, or Barack Obama, Lincoln had it worse. And so it reminds you to say, whatever time, whatever your feelings going wrong in America, would you want to trade places with what Abraham Lincoln wanted to do? With Douglas, you're realizing that you can be angry at America in a positive way, that you can have a dissent and you can make a difference, follow your beliefs. Sometimes we want things immediately done our way, and sometimes you have to just bore in for the long haul the way that Douglas did his entire life, fighting and learning and eventually uh, getting to the point where black men in America were able to vote with the 15th Amendment. I think Frederick Douglass looking at America would both rejoice at sometimes and would also mourn on some of the things that he is seeing here because he recognizes that the duty of a patriot in the way that he sees it is one who will hold its nation accountable. A hundred years after our founding, dignitaries found themselves in this park, known as Lincoln Park, to dedicate this memorial, Freedom's Memorial. While the design itself was somewhat controversial at the time, no doubt about it, the funding wasn't. It came from emancipated citizens. And when it was time to pick a keynote speaker, they didn't ask the sitting president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. They asked Frederick Douglass. Clearly, our country has come a long way. We have a ways to go. But I am convinced we'll have great people emerge along the way to bring us the rest of the way. Hope you enjoyed The President of Freedom Fighter. If you did, I know you're going to love the book. Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. 
Thanks for watching. If you've enjoyed this radio special, get the podcast and all of your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, information you want, truth you demand. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. So, so glad you are here as we continue to move on and cover the issues that matter most in this country. Also, like to give it perspective. Uh, that's why this hour we're going to be hearing from Bob Glauber, uh, one of the NFL's finest NFL writers, who actually focused in this book on the history of African Americans in football, how it should have been done, the color barrier broken, how it was done, and, and what it meant to the league and what it means even today. But first things first, my adult growing up was Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali. I thought I knew everything about this great fighter, uh, this great person. I had a chance to meet him in his later years, saw, suffering severely from Parkinson's, never had a day in which he felt bad for himself. But to see in this documentary somebody, a non-boxer, put it together and yet give me new perspective on the fights and the person, especially in the years after he retired uh, and the series. Well, an opportunity to talk to Ken Burns is always great. An opportunity to talk to Ken Burns about a guy I've always worshipped. My first idol growing up uh, was better than great. And worse yet, I had to watch it ahead of time in order to know what questions to ask. So now it's time to look at... Uh, Ken Burns reviewing what went in to the making of the series Muhammad Ali. Ken Burns joins us now. Ken, welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Brian. Uh, no problem. Ken, what made you want to tackle Muhammad Ali? Because you're not the biggest boxing guy, but you realize the impact of this man. Yeah, you know, I've done one other boxing film on Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion in the beginning of the 20th century. I'm, I'm not that interested in boxing, except where the boxer intersects with American life. And when you think about Muhammad Ali, he intersects with all of the major themes of the last half of the 20th century. I mean, the role of sports in society, the role of the black athlete, the definitions of black masculinity and manhood, the civil rights movement, the human justice movement, our age-old question about race, politics, war, faith, religion, Islam, sex. I mean, all of the things we're also discussing today. So there's something kind of protean about this figure. He's considered the greatest athlete of the 20th century. I think a good barroom argument might be that he's the greatest athlete, period, full stop, willing to have that discussion. But I think it's the way in which his life reminds us about freedom and courage and love. I mean, he dies the most beloved person on the planet. And that ought to be, ought to, ought to spark some curiosity of how someone who was so reviled in the 1960s for various stands he had taken could, could sort of transform into this beloved figure in which billions, that's with a B, uh, people were drawn to him and uh, loved him. I, I just watching uh, the Frazier fights and the Foreman fight and the Liston fight and what they meant in overcoming things. You might never want to be a boxer, but if you met someone in your life that intimidates you and you win, uh, maybe Ali could show you the template how to do that. And that could have been uh, Liston, for example, who everyone was afraid to get his jab, let alone uh, feel his wrath, and he beats him. Here's David Remnick. He's one of the many uh, experts who you talk to. 
and in, in this piece, and he talks about how Ali wasn't always loved. Cut 34. We now think of Muhammad Ali as this vulnerable guy lighting the torch in Atlanta, and everybody on the globe loves him. Black people like him, white people. He's a universal hero, like almost in a religious way, like the Buddha. But when he was in the midst of his career, and not just in the early bit, he was incredibly divisive. Boo, yell, scream, throw peanuts, but whatever you do, pay to get in. People hated him, whether it was along racial lines, class lines, Vietnam lines, political lines, religious lines, where they just couldn't stand him. And people, of course, had the opposite, and this was, I loved him, loved him. Uh, the author, he was the author of King of the World, Muhammad Ali and the Rise of an American Hero. Uh, David, he, he spoke up. He, he, uh, uh, Ken, uh, as Ken, David mentioned, Ken, he spoke up, he spoke out, he bragged, and he backed it up. Yeah. Well, so there's an interesting dynamic here, Brian. Um, David uses, I think, quite appropriately the phrase divisive. But I wonder if it's Ali who's divisive or us who's divisive. And, and let me just explore that for one second. I'll use a baseball metaphor. He comes up. He's bragging, as you say. He's reciting poetry. He's predicting the rounds in which his opponents are going to fall, and they usually do fall in that round. And he's not behaving the way an athlete is supposed to behave, and particularly in the early 1960s, how a black athlete is supposed to, put that in quotes, right. behave. Right. One. Then he wins the championship. You know, it's a nine-to-one odds against him uh, to beat Liston, and he's figured Liston out, and he's just clearly brilliant, and it's an amazing fight. You know, I call all the fights the collected work of William Shakespeare because you can't make this up. The internal and internal drama of these fights are beyond imagination, and they're all the most important ones. The 25 most important ones are in the film. But after he wins the world championship— he announces that he's a member of a separatist a religious cult called the Nation of Islam, and that soon after that, they are going to change his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. This is, you know, incendiary in America uh, and strike two. Then, based on religious beliefs, he refuses induction into the United States Army in Vietnam. He's been classified as undraftable, and then because we needed more fodder, more soldiers there for that war that wasn't going well. Um, He was reclassified 1A. He refused induction. He was convicted. Though the prosecutors had suggested uh, rejecting his conscientious objector argument, um, I think America saw it only in political terms, that a black man was giving a middle finger to the USA, not that it was a sincerely held religious belief. But no matter, the prosecutors recommend something. The book is thrown out at $10,000 and five years in prison, which he appeals. But that's the strike three, because so many people, black as well as white, just thought there was a sort of ungratitude. There was something scary about the nation of Islam. And, um, you know, he, he was refusing to participate in a war, which at that time in 1966, a majority of Americans um, favored. So that's where the great animosity, he, he loses everything. He gives up everything. I mean, he knew and everyone knew that he could go into the army and he'd have a cushy job. He'd appear at USO shows and he'd do, you know, make trips. And like Joe Lewis. Going to be fun. Like Joe Lewis, but he didn't do it. He was holding to his beliefs. So I think what happens is you begin to see this rehabilitation take place in the early 70s. Finally, the Supreme Court unanimously 
um, frees him from this prison sentence on a technicality, not not establishing that, uh, that, that he was right about conscientious objector on a technicality. But nonetheless, he's free. And he, he, he makes a, a, a he's already fought a couple fights. He's now going to go back and fight Frazier to get back his title. He loses and he does so spectacularly with great humility. Right. At the end. Which is so and, interesting. And, and, and you, you point this with, out, Ken. And I just, I'm going to let you, people hear it. But you say the loss turned things around in his public perception. First, let's hear it. This was one of the most fascinating fights ever. It totally ever, lived up to it, the hype it, tonight to, in 1971. Here it is, March 8th, 1971. After the fight, Ali had been knocked down on the 15th, but got up. Cut 41. Nine to six for Frazier. Frazier. Eleven rounds for Frazier, for Ali, Ronnie, Levin, and Fowler. The winner by unanimous decision and strength. Champion of the world, Joe Frazier. So, what changed after the loss? So, I think, you know, and let's just be honest, too. This film is very... Uh, clear that Muhammad Ali, an outsized personality with great strength, like an ancient Greek hero, uh, also has weaknesses. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strength. Before the fight, which was called the fight of the century, he had used the language of a, that a white racist would use to describe a black man about his black opponent, Joe Frazier, who is completely unacceptable. As the scholar Todd Boyd says, you know, in this case, here's the ultimate conscious black guy, but he's using his powers for evil instead of good. And I think one way of understanding it is implied there is that there's a kind of superhero nature to Muhammad Ali. Anyway, he knows he's behind on points. The last round, he's trying desperately to get a knock out of Frazier and instead you know he he he's vulnerable because of that desperation and Frazier knocks him down he's immediately up the decision as you heard is unanimous for Frazier he's remaining the heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali afterwards is soft-spoken he says into every life failure must come I have to be an example people lose their lives they lose loved ones they lose titles and we have to go forward it's an amazing thing but America by March of 71, has looking at him in, 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 with different eyes. They're beginning to think, you know, maybe he's right. All the combat troops are coming out of Vietnam. It's been a mistake um, that he, he was right about Vietnam. And more importantly, he had held to his conscience and he was trying to come back. And so as Robert Lipsight said, Frazier, uh, one of the great sports writers and who was a cub reporter and followed Cassius Clay and then Muhammad Ali all through his career, he says, he was um, essentially – Frazier won the fight, but Ali won America, and that's when kids, black and white, began putting his poster up. And then it's only three years before he has – he wins back the championship in spectacular fashion in another Liston-like situation where people in his corner are worried he's going to be killed by his opponent in Kinshasa Zaire, George Foreman. Instead, like the Liston fight, it's just – an by that time – the rehabilitation has has um, I'm not saying it's complete. I think it was probably complete by the time he was lighting the torch in Atlanta 25 years right. ago this summer. His hands shaking from the effects of the Parkinson's that all the blows to the head probably provoked. It was a 
inherited family trait. And, and we do know that Parkinson's does get handed down, but maybe those blows provoked it. And he's silenced and, and sort of encased by it. And now he's this beloved figure. Michael J. Fox, the great actor who has Parkinson's, said an amazing thing, Brian. He said, I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still. This loud, voluble, funny, great man who spoke all the time, whenever he spoke, right. um, you know, the sports world stopped, now couldn't speak and in some ways spoke volumes and became an ambassador for the U.S. around the, the world and died, as I said, the most beloved person. And so he spoke volumes even in his silence. Right. It's just one of the great stories that I've ever come across. And by the way, this film is co-directed by my daughter, Sarah Burns, and her husband, David McMahon. We collaborated on the Central Park Five film and the Jackie Robinson film several years ago. Yeah, Ken, it just goes so beyond boxing, and, and uh, yeah. it is fantastic. So, Ken, you're kind enough to do two segments, so we'll take a short time out, come back, and let you finish up. But keep in mind, Muhammad Ali is airing now on PBS. Uh, you can download it or, or watch it on your local affiliate. It is so worth the watch. Back in a moment. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Never again make me the underdog until I'm about 50 years old. But I didn't dance. I didn't dance for a reason. I wanted to make him lose all his power. I kept telling him he had no punch. He couldn't hit. He's swinging like a sissy. He's missing. Let me see your box. I hadn't started dancing yet. You can't say my legs are gone. You can't say I was tired because what happened? I didn't dance from the second round on. I stayed on the ropes. When I stay on the ropes, you think I'm doing bad. But I want all boxers to put this in the page of boxers. Staying on the ropes is a beautiful thing with a heavyweight when you make him shoot his best shots and you know he's not hitting you. I would have gave George Solomon two rounds instead of punching because after that he was mine. And that's the rope-a-dope strategy, which is now part of American vernacular. Uh, we got a couple more minutes with Ken Burns. Ken, that moment, just like the Liston moment, but they really said he lost to Frazier, got his jaw broken by Norton, Foreman crushed both those guys inside of two rounds. How could Ali survive? How did he do it? Can you make sense of it? Yeah, he used his head, his heart, his spirit, his faith, all of those things. He, he understood the internal dynamics of what was going to win, and he applied that. I mean, his own corner is screaming at him, Angelo Dundee, get off the ropes, get off the ropes the entire time. But he had a strategy, and he basically let George, who one punch connecting, would, that would be it, like Sonny Liston. I mean, it's just one of those great fights. As I said, it's Shakespearean in its internal drama and its external drama there in Zaire and Kinshasa, you know, supported by this dictator, you know, Mobuto Sese Seiko. It's just you can't make this stuff up. And it is really the high point of everything. He regains the title. He is, as Howard Bryant says in the film, whole again. And it reminds you, you know, I've been making films, Brian, about the U.S. for nearly 50 years, but I've also been making films about us. That is to say, the two-letter, lowercase, plural pronoun, all of the intimacy of us and all of the majesty, all of the complexity, all of the contradiction, even all of the controversy of the U.S. It's a marvelous. I feel privileged to sort of exist in that space. And what I learned when I was working on our country music documentary is that there's only us. 
There's no them. And we spend way too much of our energy creating them. It's a kind of out of political expedience. But as they say, in war, the first casualty is the truth. In political expediency, the first casualty is the truth. And what you can find embedded in the life of Muhammad Ali is someone who emerges phoenix-like from the trials that he was put through, from losing three and a half years at the height of his career to rise once again, not once, but twice to the heavyweight championship and do it uh, in a, in a, with the, engaging the themes of freedom. It's tough for a black man to achieve, you know, escape the specific gravity of what this country can sometimes do. It's about courage, not just in the ring, as he exhibited in Zaire there, but also uh, in life. Uh, and it's about love. I mean, this is this is a guy who understood it. There's a wonderful shot of the Beatles visiting the Fifth Street gym while he's training for Liston. And there's a fake publicity shot, you know, of him hitting George. And George is, hit, you know, is toppling down like dominoes, Ringo, John, and Paul. And I realized, my goodness, there are five men who understood what the mechanics are of the universe. That is to say that only love multiplies. And, you know, it's probably best said by one of the two survivors, Paul McCartney, who said, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. This is what Muhammad Ali was about. And those last three decades, imprisoned as it seems to us, um, in, in the ravages of Parkinson's, nonetheless, just became this huge figure. His daughter, Rashida, in the last episode, squeezes her fingers together and said, boxing was only this much, meaning, you know, he could have done anything else. He could have been a carpenter. You never know what he would have done. We, you can see from the early footage of him, and you can see him say this as a young man, I don't have to box. I know I'm destined for something. And I think in some ways he was, as so many people in our history, as you know, Brian, particularly having studied recently Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, some people are messengers of us, not them of us. And therefore, they're messengers of the U.S. And I am so proud that Muhammad Ali is one of us. He's well, an American. I, I wish I could have added to those statements, but it was just so perfect. That's why you do what you do. Ken Burns, how do we get this? You can, you, you know, it's on PBS. Uh, episode three is tonight and episode four tomorrow night broadcast, but it's been available since Sunday for free at pbs.org slash Ali. So you can go back and catch up if you haven't seen it. You can look at your right. leisure. Uh, we're now in no longer appointment Ken, TV. But Ken Burns, thanks so much. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you look at someone like a Kenny Washington, his story is not just in Los Angeles newspapers. It's picked up in Cleveland. It's picked up in New York. And I think that Kenny Washington especially brings credibility to the Los Angeles Rams. He, in many ways, is an example of how African Americans, through their efforts, not only improved a lot of African Americans, but improved a lot of those that care about professional football. And that is Lonnie uh, Bunch uh, on Kenny Washington. Uh, he is a director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, as Kenny Washington broke the color barrier in what we now know as the National Football League. They were integrated in college, but not in the pros. People are focused on Jackie Robinson. Well, that is not the focus with Bob Glauber. He's focused on football every day of the week, but now historical football. He's got a brand new book out written with uh, Keyshawn Johnson, uh, and it's called The Forgotten First. Kenny Washington Woody Strode, Mario Motley, Bill Willis, and the breaking of the NFL color barrier. Bob, congratulations. 
Thanks very much, Brian. I appreciate you having me. 75. It's, it's a very cool subject. Oh, it's a great subject, a necessary yeah. one. 75 years since the line was broken. What did you know about this before you took on the project? Brian, I embarrassingly knew very little about it. And as I kind of came to realize, and, and with Keyshawn as well, not, no one really knows much about the history of integration in the NFL. You know, everyone knows Jackie Robinson, but very few people know that football, the color line was crossed the year before Jackie Robinson joined baseball. And, you know, you're, you're right, I cover football every day. I've covered it for over 30 years, and I just didn't know this story. But it's it's just not a widely told story, but it's an important one. And, you know, especially in a league that is now 70% African-American, you know, it started somewhere. And there were zero black players before Kenny Washington and Woody Strode and Bill Willis and Mary Motley in Cleveland uh, crossed the color line and, you know, for good. And, that, you know, the NFL has, has you know, now predominantly African-American. So Kenny Washington was the first and a teammate of Jackie Robinson in college. Yes. Yes, he, they played football together. They were on this legend, as well as Woody Strode, who became a fine Hollywood actor uh, later in his life. But they played on his 1939 UCLA football team. It was, the, it was an unbeaten team that challenged USC for the national championship. An incredible year. And Kenny Washington was probably the best player in the entire country that year. And he and Jackie Robinson played in the same backfield together. And... Brian, on the, on, on the day that Kenny Washington's college career ended in 1939, they had a 0-0 tie against USC in front of 103,000 people at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. That same day, the NFL hold, held a 22-round draft. And he would have been the first player drafted based on the way the game was played had he been allowed in that draft, but he wasn't. No black players in that draft and no black players in the NFL till Kenny Washington crossed that line in 1946. And by that time, he'd had many surgeries on his knees, so he wasn't the same player. But he was an important player. They loved him in Los Angeles. He demanded that Woody Strode be on the same team as him in 1946. They, you know, they had uh, you know, modest NFL careers and strode only a year, uh, but their contribution was really unmistakable. And then in Cleveland, um, it, it was like Bill Willis and Mary Motley joined Paul Brown, and Paul Brown is the really the uh, the branch Ricky of this story because he knew what he was doing. He willingly signed two black players, and no one else in the league did. In Los Angeles, it was sort of forced upon the Rams, and they agreed to it. But in Cleveland, um, Paul Brown welcomed these players because he knew they were good football. He just wanted good football players. He understood the importance of it, but he just wanted to build a great team, and he did. So this guy, Joe Horrigan, he's the Pro Football Hall of Fame Executive Director, uh, talked about Branch Rickey and the role this had with Paul Brown. Cut 42. There's a very popular story of Jackie Robinson coming into the majors. Well, that story that's not told there is Branch Rickey was also, in 1946, a part owner of the football Brooklyn Dodgers and played against the Cleveland Browns of the All-American Football Conference. And Branch Rickey once told Marion Motley, he said, had I not had the experience of seeing you and Bill Willis play in a contact sport without incident, I might not have had the courage to bring Jackie Robinson up into the majors. So that's pretty cool, right? That is a huge story, Brian, and very few people know that story. In fact, Marion Motley carried a letter from Branch Rickey uh, for his entire life, and Rickey told him the same thing. He told him the impact that watching him and Willis in that All-America Football Conference 
had on Branch Rickey and, and why it kind of gave him the courage to decide what he did with Jackie Robinson a year later. So, so football know, these, beat baseball yeah. to breaking the barrier. Football beat baseball to breaking the barrier. You would never know it. Uh, and I think the NFL likes this fact, but you know, next year is going to be 75 years since Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball. There's going to be a huge deal. There's a huge deal made every year for Jackie Robinson. They have a Jackie Robinson day every single year. You can imagine what the 75th anniversary is going to be like. There's been just been very little um, this year. You know, the Rams have embraced it. They 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 bought copies of this book, um, believe it or not, for all their players. They saw it. They they kind of they thought it was important. They wanted all their players, all their coaches and executives, to have the book. They understand the history. They understand what Woody Strode and and Kenny Washington did for not only the Rams but for the history of of pro football. And it was a very important time. So you also there's some villains. Uh, you know, Calvin Griffith, uh, he's mm-hmm. clearly a racist. I moved to Minnesota because there's a lot of white, there's very few blacks here. You know, he liked to be around white people. George Preston Marshall, the owner of the Redskins, he was an outright segregationist. He was the last to, to allow black players to play for his team, right? That's correct, Brian. And he only did it, and he did it in 1961 under intense pressure from the JFK administration. So Kenny Washington and Woody Strode come in at 46. And then integration certainly begins in earnest. Not, you know, not all at once, but black players are eventually signed. Uh, but George Preston Marshall held out until 1961. He, he refused to, to sign black players. He felt that it wasn't good for his market and his, and his fan base. And the JFK administration pressured him sufficiently with the, the uh, basically said, look, we've, there's a, a federally funded stadium that you want to play in. It's now RFK Stadium. Um, you're not going to be able to play in it unless you integrate your team. Unbelievable. And a, a, a deal was brokered by Pete Rozelle and then George Preston Marshall, who made no secret of his disdain for, for black athletes on, on his team. He just didn't want them. And he finally relented. Um, and then the Bobby Mitchell trade with Cleveland, and Bobby Mitchell became the first African-American player uh, on, on Washington in, in 1962. And I believe he was honored at the game I was at. I was at the Redskins-Giant game uh, this year. It, the first time you know, I was in Washington. I ble- yeah, Brian, his number was retired yeah. then. And that's why this story kind of resonates throughout history. And, and we talk about current events. You know, we talk about when George Preston Marshall's monument was removed last year um, in, the, in the wake of the George Floyd killing. And so, so this, this, you know, threads of this story run from that time well, you know, there was a 12-year ban on black players in the NFL from 33 to 45. And then from that time to now, there are, are, are reminders of it. And even Kenny Washington and, right. and Marion Motley in particular. You know, Washington was a quarterback. Washington, Kenny Washington was the first black quarterback to throw a ball in the NFL, and he is not given credit for it. Um, hopefully history will kind of realize that, and, and that will right. be changed. But he did. He threw a pass. He threw several passes for the Rams during his career, uh, but history doesn't reflect that. And then you see the struggles that black quarterbacks have had over time. And now it's you know many of the dominant quarterbacks mm-hmm. in today's NFL are African American. Marion Motley wanted to be a coach in the NFL, never got an opportunity, never. 
And that theme runs through today's NFL. So, so the, you know, this is just, you know, the arc of history doesn't just end with 46 and, you know, the, the color line is crossed. You know, things continue to evolve. Uh, Bob Glaber, our guest, two-time uh, winner of the New York State Sports Writer of the Year Award, National Sports Media Association, and selected for the 2021 Bill Nunn Jr. Career Achievement Award. But he's not quite done with his career yet, not by a long shot. His new book is now out, The Forgotten First, Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Mario Motley, uh, Bill Willis, and the breaking of the NFL color barrier. Now, about the men, were they bitter? Were they bitter that they had to work so hard that they had to break this barrier that they didn't get the opportunities? In Mario Motley's case, I knew about him because I hosted a radio show with Jim Brown, and he raved about Mario Motley. Jim Brown thought Mario Motley was a better player than he was. And Mario Motley was a great runner, but he was also a great blocker, and that's something Jim Brown didn't, didn't particularly like to do. Um, there was some bitterness, Brian, but but it was, a, it was contained. Now, uh, Woody Strode was released after one year with the Rams. He believes, and he told his son this, um, that he was released because he was married to a Hawaiian woman. At that time, that was considered an interracial marriage, and the owner, Dan Reeves, did not want him on the team. He was released after a year. Was he bitter? Well, he once was quoted as saying, if I had to integrate heaven, I wouldn't do it. You know, so he it was really a traumatic yeah. experience. He actually considered suicide um, after being released by the Rams. He was that devastated by it. I, I, Kenny Washington yeah, go ahead, was Ken, Kenny was somewhat bitter about it, especially, you know, Jackie Robinson got all the accolades. But, you know, I think he accepted it. He was happy with his life. He was a very fun-loving, free-spirited, and warm guy. People loved being around him. Uh, Motley, a little bit bitter, and Willis, absolutely not bitter. You know, he went to the Hall of Fame along with Motley. He ended up uh, working as the commissioner of the Cleveland and the Ohio Recreation Department, and he he had a tremendous impact on young people. He he lived a very full and very satisfying, very meaningful life, so I would say – Willis was not bitter about it. So one thing I so I have the president of Freedom Fighter coming out on November second, and Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And back then, you even go back a hundred years from when you're talking about, or sixty years, uh, the the you know the the racial attitudes that were just commonplace. You know, people on on freedom was one thing, but race uh, race equality was was uh, decades away, uh, and it's just amazing along the way. As much as African Americans worked hard and deserve all the credit, there was heroic white people that stepped up along the way. Whether it's uh, you know famous abolitionists like John Adams and John Quincy Adams and Alexander Hamilton, and there's other unknowns like William Lloyd Garrison and Garrett Smith. Besides, you mentioned Paul Brown. Are there other coaches that could see the injustice and took heroic actions? General managers, executives, people. I would say not many, Brian. Um, Paul Brown was the true hero of this story in terms of uh, a, a white person offering opportunity, and it was it was not widely accepted. Um, you know, the Giants, Tim Mara owned the team, and and he was he certainly participated in the ban on black players during that time. But he signed Emlyn Tunnell two years after the color barrier was broken, and that was a big deal for the Giants. And Tunnell turned out to be one of the all-time great defensive backs in NFL history, first yeah. African-American placed in the Hall of Fame. Um, so so it, was a, it was a kind of a grudging acceptance. You know, even George Hallis. Now, George Hallis, in 1940, he wanted to sign Kenny Washington. It's a famous story where Owner he, of the Bears, yeah. The owner of the Bears, you know, founder of the NFL, 
wanted to sign him in 1940 um, after the college all-star game that year. The best college players would play the, the, the NFL champions from the previous year. Hallis went up to Kenny Washington and said, hey, I want you to, I want you to stay in Chicago. Just, just do me a favor and stick around for a little bit. I, I, I'm interested in signing you. Now, he went to his fellow owners, and he, and he, he ran it by him. And he, he just couldn't swing it. Um, and they didn't approve it. And George Preston Marshall was very much against um, any black players playing in the NFL, and certainly wow. in Washington because he owned the Southern market. That was the southernmost team in the NFL at that time. And, and Marshall felt that he, he would be economically harmed right. if black players played in Washington. Think so about that. Yeah, it's, okay. it's unbelievable. Uh, listen, Bob, go out and get the book. This is an important book. Everybody listening right now, I do want to bring it you to your co-author, Keyshawn Johnson. When John Gruden uh, quit after his emails were exposed in two th- uh, from back in 2011 when he was with ESPN, this is what Keyshawn Johnson uh, said, cut 46. Not only do you mock the size of an African-American's lips, you also degrade owners in the National Football League as well as the commissioner. My concentration ain't only you talk bad about a black man, you're also talking about bad about people that own teams, run the league, the commissioner of the league, because he's a bad person. I try- so uh, I was uh, I did not know there was this much bitterness between the two. Is John Gruden's oh, yeah. reputation in the NFL like that, or is Keyshawn Johnson prior to this incident that he quit on uh, an anomaly? Um, I, see, their relationship goes back a long time, and don't forget, uh, John Gruden deactivated Keyshawn Johnson when they were together with the Bucks. They won a Super Bowl together, and then shortly thereafter, Gruden deactivated Keyshawn because they were having problems. So it, it, it's it's personal with Keyshawn. Um, I think he's felt, he's been very consistent in not liking John Gruden and and not being afraid to say it. So I don't know that. All players have felt that way about John Gruden over the years. You know, they haven't. Even you know, the Raiders, uh, not all of them felt that way, and, and probably most of them didn't feel that way when Gruden was there with the team. So then things come out, and the, and the emails come out, and 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 it blows up, and he's got to walk away because I think he felt he, he couldn't, he just couldn't deal gotcha. with it. You know, he he couldn't face the, the team. Um, but Keyshawn has been very, he's very consistent on that one, no question. Uh, I think right now, John, and not liking John Gruden. Yeah, uh, yeah. Bob Glaber. No, you know, and that was like it was a little right. bit counterintuitive. He it was not a popular opinion. You know, Gruden is, was uh, you know obviously very popular, and Keyshawn was clearly in the minority of of people and players who, who didn't get along with him. Yeah, and he got the and it looks like his, his opinion won out. Uh, Bob Glaber, congratulations on the book. Working with Keyshawn, it's going to be great. The Forgotten First. Bob Glaber, great job, and I know you got to get to work for this weekend. Thanks. Thanks very much, Brian. Appreciate it. You got it. Uh, back in a moment. Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. I uh, hope you're having a great Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I'm so glad you're here, especially if you're checking this out for the first time because your schedule's changed. You finally have off. 
Uh, or you have to work and you're listening to us again. We appreciate it, even if you're listening on the podcast. So as you know, uh, as of November 2nd, I've been crazy, in a good way, out promoting the President Freedom Fighter. My goal is get it out there. If you don't want to buy it, that's fine. But I think it's two, there's about two men you need to know about. And at the very least, if I whet your appetite to talk about these remarkable individuals, you go out and get biographies and continue to expand your knowledge on America's history, which we're constantly in uh, war with. So that's why when I go on stage in places like um, on December 3rd, I'll be in Ponte Vedra. Uh, on December 4th in Clearwater, I'll be talking about all my books from Sam Houston to Andrew Jackson to Thomas Jefferson to George Washington to give you an idea and a comeback when people say, well, America is never that great. Well, I have a counterargument to that. So if you want to catch up to me on the road, I certainly hope you do. I mentioned those two dates. On December 5th, I'll be at the Barnes & Nobles at Tyson's Corner, always one of my favorite spots in McLean, Virginia. Then I'll be in, uh, um, on December 7th, Fernando Beach, uh, for Fernandina, Fernandina Beach, I should say, at the Book Loft. I hope to see everybody there. It's December 7th. Uh, and, of course, at the Newton Bookshop. I always love to go there, a quick in and out in Newtown Bookshop over in Pennsylvania. I know it's during the week. It's a Tuesday, but why not? I'm the one taking the far ride. And then, of course, there's other dates coming up, uh, February 16th at the Union League uh, and the Paramount Theater in May. Brian Kilmeade, Joe. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.